There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S. and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Okay, everybody. Uh, Welcome to today's uh, Seven Figures Partners podcast. Today, we have the fortunate opportunity to, you know, ask some questions and listen to an entrepreneur who has gone through an amazing journey. We are going to be meeting Brent Williams, who is the founder of Dental Select, where for over 30 years, he guided this company to phenomenal growth as its CEO. And Dental Select provides employment for over 100 people, has created an, an amazing culture, and they currently serve over 470,000 individuals and families by providing quality dental and vision insurance. And just recently, Dental Select was acquired by Emeritus Life Insurance for a large sum. And uh, as was the case uh, back in 1989, insurance is still too complex, too frustrating, and too expensive for too many individuals, but Dental Select has always grown when it refuses to accept the status quo and does things differently. And while the company has come a long way, it's still a young and hungry group committed to that original vision of simple and affordable access to dental care for all. That's an amazing vision there, Brent. Uh, Has that vision kind of been the same uh, over this uh, period of 30 years that you've built this company? Or has it uh, changed or pivoted in any way? You know, the visions, uh, well, thank you for having me on here, actually. Uh, I I appreciate uh, uh, the interest uh, in, in my story. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, the vision's never changed. I, I think how you see it and how you define it um, and how you get more granular with it, and it does morph over time, but ultimately it was, it's the same. It was just uh, provide, you know, affordable quality dental plans to, to, to families and, uh, and employers and things that, that otherwise couldn't afford them or their needs weren't, needs weren't being met. Perfect. I think a simple vision is what helps c- companies become great. You know, you look at the different companies like Apple and Google and Under Armour that have simple visions. And, and then, of course, they grow and expand. But that, that, that original vision seems to be what drives a lot of the success. Yeah, I really, uh, it really it went from just, you know, we, we had all kinds of mission statements at the beginning. I can't even remember them all, to be honest with you. But what it morphed down to was three really, and it was probably three or four years ago we, we came up with this one, and it was make dental simple. Mm. That was it. Because like um, health insurance and all these insurances are, are fairly complicated for people yeah. to use. They don't understand their benefits. They don't, they don't understand why insurance companies pay what they pay. They don't understand uh, the EOBs that come in the mail and all the complexities that go around that. People hate it. They really don't like it. It's, it's, it's frustrating. Um, yeah, medical's worse than dental, of course, but uh, it's just mm-hmm. frustrating. Uh, people just want to walk out and be done like they're in a grocery store. And, uh, but, you know, dental and, 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 and health insurance and things like that, it's the only transaction that we have as consumers that the financial transaction is not finished when you leave the place of business. In fact, it's just beginning. In fact, it may last months and sometimes years before you actually have that transaction complete, which is, that's the part that's unacceptable in our market. 
No question. Now, going back to the beginning of this journey, what led you to have the confidence to launch this business? Young and blind. I'll just be honest with you. You know, um, I, I'm originally from Canada, and I had a, 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 C, a version, the Canadian version of a CPA up there, and I, I, uh, I wanted to come down to the U.S. and, you know, do the American dream and, and came down with virtually, I had about $2,000 in my pocket. And uh, I was young. I was like 26 years old and uh, didn't know what I was going to do. And my, fortunately, uh, my first venture ended up being a success. And, and uh, but, you know, the confidence is really, it's more out of necessity. You just, I think you just want it. And, uh, and you don't really know how to get it. I mean, when you're 26 years old, I don't care how educated you are until you've gone through the hard knocks of, you know, managing people and, 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 and markets and, and distribution channels. And there's nothing that can teach you that. And so uh, confidence is just, uh, well, my wife calls it uh, grit. You know, it, it's not really confidence. It's more grit. It, it, it's, it's being able to uh, handle the pitfalls and stand up again and brush yourself off and go again and, and not, not stop. It's all about that tenacity, that grit. Uh, and I think I had a lot of that. I had a lot of that throughout my life. And, and that's what really gave me that, I guess, so to speak, confidence. Perfect. And that's kind of where we wanted to go next is what was your upbringing like and how did that affect you or kind of mold you into becoming a, a risk taker or an entrepreneur? Well, I, I'm about, my education is about the opposite of being a risk taker. I'm, I'm trained as an accountant. You know, accountants are pretty, you know, bean counters are usually pretty conservative. We just do numbers, let someone else take all those risks. And, but uh, I actually started out in, in my first entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial adventure was really, I, I grew up on a cattle ranch. So number one, I, work, I learned how to work really hard, you know, up in the morning, doing chores, you know, all every weekend while my friends were having fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, in the evening again, you do that whole cycle all over again, chores again, milking the cow, the whole deal. Uh, and it taught me how to work hard. So anything was easy after that, you know, really. Uh, it's because, you know, running a ranch is pretty, pretty uh, intense because you have, you have animals and you've got to take care of them. But uh, I, in, in the uh, 12th grade, I borrowed $20,000 from our local uh, cattle feeders association. And I raised, uh, I bought feeder cattle and I raised them and fed them over the winter and you know you sell them to to on an auction in the spring after it gained a lot of weight and i i did that and unfortunately that year the cattle market kind of went down and at best i broke even i might have lost a little money and i i worked all winter long doing this and i just felt you know i i guess that's not being a rancher is not what i really want to do and at, at that moment i switched from ranching and went right into accounting uh, and, uh, really, uh, it was fortunate. I did that. Not that ranching's bad. And I, I, I love it. And I'm more of an armchair rancher. I, I look out of the fields now and outside my house and watch them hay and, and critique them. But, uh, <laughs> um, but it, it, it's that, uh, it, that's kind of how I got, that was my first thing. And then, and after, you know, I worked for accounting firm for a while and then I, then I worked for a large company as their uh, CFO when I was 25 years old, which I don't know how I even got that job, but I did. That's another long story. 
but uh, I I was doing business deals, buying, selling companies, and and for the owner of the company I was working for, and it I just felt I could do this myself because I was doing everything, you know, was, you know, and I was young and really you're kind of stu stupid and stupidity um, sh blocks you from a certain amount of fear. Uh, and, uh, you know, the older you get, the more fear you have because you know more. <laughs> so. No question. So as a senior in high school, you, you borrow 20,000, start your own, uh, your own cattle business, work your butt off an entire winter and then basically break even or lose a lot of money. You're like, Dang. So, so definitely learned a lot, but already we're, we're taking risks as an entrepreneur. And then as you, as you uh, went through the, the process of becoming an accountant or CPA, then uh, you, you get on as a CFO, which is super impressive at 25 years old. And then with that opportunity, did, uh, did that uh, person kind of act a little bit as a mentor or as somebody who kind of, you know, showed you how this can work as an entrepreneur? Well, I, I wish he did. Um, you know, he wasn't around a lot, and uh, I had a staff of about 13, 14 people, and uh, most of them which were older than me, and I just had to figure it out. Uh, I was lucky to get that job. It was just, I kind of fell into it. It was uh, an interesting uh, story, but uh, they, uh, no, I actually didn't get a lot of, uh, other than, you know, he, he just said, hey, well, you know, I, well, I told him, I, you know, you've got too much cash, and you're not, your ROI is terrible on this cash. We need to start investing in so he said, go buy some companies. So at 25, I went and bought companies and, uh, and then bought and sold them and flipped them. And, and I was making a lot of money for him. And that's what just gave me, and I, and I was doing it mostly myself. And, and that's what, you know, drove me to, um, you know, I, I can do this myself. And I, when I came down to the U.S., I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I was just... Uh, fortunate to come stumble across. I, I had three criteria to start a business. And a lot of people ask me, uh, you know, why I started Dental Select. And those three criteria are no inventory, no accounts receivable, and residual revenue. And that is a really tough combination of things. And because when I was in accounting, you know, you see more, I was in public accounting for several years and doing audits and, and books. And uh, you, you see way more companies fail by far than, than succeed. And I found the common denominator was cash flow. It's always cash flow. That's what makes a company fail. Whether you're losing money or making money, cash flow, you can run into cash flow problems. And, and, I, and those are the three core things I saw consistently cause cash flow problems, inventory accounts, and then you know, residual revenue, revenue, and that was basically your revenue is too cyclical and it goes up and down and seasonally or whatever. And, and, and so I saw this dental insurance thing. I thought, Oh, no inventory. It's, it's a financial service and, and no receivables because you're the employees had to, or the employees paid part of the premium and there's a fiduciary responsibility for the employer to pay us. And we would stop paying their claims uh, if the, if they uh, didn't pay, didn't pay the premium. So we, we never had accounts receivable. And of course, residual revenue in 31 years we never had a down quarter uh in our growth and 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 it's because you know when you you don't buy dental insurance one quarter and then stop the next and then pick it up again the next quarter you you, know, you keep it going 
Um, so occasionally, we'd lose a customer to a competitor, but you know, we'd we'd gain enough that we'd always uh, we always grew. And uh, so, uh, I hope I answered your question. Probably went off a little too long. No, that's that's excellent stuff. So, three keys that you mentioned there. Uh, in selecting a, a great business, number one, you don't have to get inventory because there's all those financial risks of, of the upfront capital and then the accounts receivables where people may or may not follow through and pay those. And the third one, and I think uh, this is actually one of the questions I was going to ask is, is how important how to, it is to have recurring revenue and recurring income coming in. And in the insurance industry, that's kind of what the entire thing's based on. So having that recurring income, how what, what is it like? Because there's so many businesses that could have recurring income streams or they could add that in somehow, some way, but they don't. What is it about recurring income that helped your business so much? That's unbelievable. 31 years of consistent quarter, uh, quarterly uh, growth, revenue, and profits. Um, well, it, 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 uh, it's kind of why all the software companies are going on a subscription model now. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, waiting till you have a new product, waiting for this, you know, Christmas season to come up or the, you know, to, you know, to, to pick up your revenue. Those are, those all, it's, you can't predict cash flow. Um, you try to as best you can, but it's very difficult to, to do that. That's not to say those businesses can't flourish and, and many of them, many do. Um, I'm just saying it, it eliminates some risk. So your odds are a bit better if you can have residual income. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, that's really the, you know one of the great things about the, our, our success was that because I never had those um, severe cash flow problems. I did have cash flow problems. I remember going through the recession in 2008, and and our our claims went through the roof because everyone thought they're going to lose their job, <laughs> and uh, that was a, that was a bit of a struggle. So yeah, it, you know, businesses aren't you know invulnerable to cash flow problems, even ones that have residual revenues. But, because expenses can go up and down sometimes, but um, it, it certainly takes an element of risk out. No question. So for a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, you know, there's different entrepreneur classes and college courses, and there's accounting that talk about cash flow. But for you, how do you define cash flow? And it sounds like you've got it down to a science on a weekly, monthly basis. How do you know when your cash flow is going the right direction and how, how did you define it in your business? Well, first thing you do is get someone that knows what they're doing because cash flow is, it's a little bit like throwing darts, you know, and, and you, you can get, you know, people that are really good at it. You're going to get close to the bullseye and predicting what the cash flow is going to be. And then, and then, uh, you know, you, you have to understand the, the, financial side of an organization that cash flow is the blood of, of, of a business and it, and it, without it flowing, it's dead. And, and so you need to have someone that knows what they're doing in that. And whether it's just someone on the side part-time or if you have the budget, someone full-time that really understands it. Fortunately, that was my background. So when I was small, I understood this. Of course, a few years into the business, maybe probably like seven or eight years um, that I hired uh, a CFO and, and, uh, and handed all that over to that person so that uh, I, I could focus on the growth. But that's really the most important thing is, is if you don't understand how to do cash flow and you don't understand what 
you know, what, how those financial statements work. Um, doesn't matter how good your idea is, you can go under real quick, uh, even if you're making money. No question. So you mentioned uh, the recession of 08, 09 and different challenges and, and failures that we all experience as entrepreneurs. How did you overcome some of these challenges and obstacles? And, and what were some of the keys to getting through those, those challenging times that, that happened to every successful entrepreneur mm -hmm. at some point? Yeah, well, you have to make tough decisions and they're not fun. Now, you know, owning a business um, and having employees and having a lot of customers uh, they all rely on, on the organ, you know, on the business of some sort. And unfortunately, you know, when, when we went through the 2008, we had to make some cuts and it was not fun. Um, but you got to make those tough decisions. Um, you know, you're like, you're, 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 the pulse of the organization in my industry is people. Um, I can walk in there on a Saturday, on a weekend, um, back when I owned it, uh, and it was dead. It was just completely, you know, void of people. Uh, but when they were there, uh, it had life. And so, you know, the, the, those people are who I tried to take care of the most. Um, my employees actually really came up in, in front of my customers. Um, and that seems kind of backwards to some people. Um, but if you put employees in front of customers and you really take care of them and, and you, you care about them, um, and you make them feel like they're part of changing the world, uh, they will do amazing things for you. And that taking care of the customer just, just happens. Um, but, you know, those, those, those are challenges. Employees are challenges. People are challenges. There's so many broad you know, aspects of personalities. And, and it takes a long time to figure out how to hire that. And, and, and it, it's a, the school of hard knocks. You know, and, and there's, it's almost not teachable. You know, you have to, you have to go through it. And you have to go uh, make that mistake of, you know, you heard that thing, you know, hire fast or fire, fire fast and hire slow. Hire slow, yeah. You know, it, it is, it's real. That was probably my reoccurring mistake. You know, as, as a business owner, you know, if, if I was the shareholder and I was the, uh, I was the board of directors and, and, or I controlled the board of directors, let's just say, and I was the CEO. So you, you, the hard part is defining, you know, splitting off your responsibilities. And, and I wasn't good at it at the beginning. And my compassion as a shareholder going, oh, this person, I, I want to give them another try. And, and of course, the, um, um, the, there's a, or as a CEO, I was feeling that. And really, if I had shareholders I had to report to, I would go, I gotta let this person go now instead of giving them another chance or the third chance or, you know, and, and or hiring them back, which is a big mistake that I, I one, one mistake I've made big time. Um, it, it, so you have to, if you're the owner, you have to learn how to segregate those responsibilities and you have to act like there's someone that can fire me, this board of directors up there, even though they really can't. What if they could? How would I? How would I make this decision? And <clears throat> but when you own it, you you because it's yours, and, and there's no one to say, Brent, you know, Brent, you did a bad job. You know, there's no one to say that. Uh, you kind of get a little bit of a soft heart, and 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 sometimes too soft, 
And it doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't do that, that employee any good. It doesn't do all the other employees that are within your organization any good. And it doesn't do your business any good. And uh, so, so, yeah, failures. It, I would say my, my, my core failures, if I had to kind of lump them, were probably mostly personnel, you know, learning how to do that. And, and, uh, and then figuring out how to hire right. And, of course, you know, it's, it's the last... 10 or 15 years, I finally figured that one out, you know, uh, it's, it's tough. So, so what is that pro what did you learn from the first half into the second half that made you that much more effective at finding the right people or oh, knowing I, that, that you have the right person in the right position, it's the right fit and, and you can trust them. Well, part of it, I think is, is as, as your business, you know, matures and as you figure, figure out how to do things, uh, a little better and what is your defined goals if you have your goal to find and I I had them but it was kind of loose at the beginning and when you have loosely defined goals it's hard to attract people to a loosely defined goal and I know companies that are nowadays are are doing a much better job I think at, at right out the shoot <clears throat> on defining what those are um, so that you can attract people and they understand what you want to do so as uh, the company progressed our, what we were trying to do was was far more de defined and uh, than, than than what it was in the past. And and what I found is that people <clears throat> want to be a part of something that they feel they're going to change something in the world, whether it's big or whether it's small. They just don't want to sit there and do repetitive. And although sometimes it is repetitive, but without purpose. And they want another part of changing something. And, and once I, I, I started focus on we are changing, we're gonna, we're gonna change the world. We're gonna take this boring dental insurance. I mean, insurance, like seriously, huh? It's about as old and boring as you could possibly be. And, and it was when I started to turn it into a tech company um, it is when we really started to change our culture and, and, and change how things was. And that's where we started changing our, our um, uh, how we communicated to uh, new hires and team members uh, so that they would, and, and it would attract them and they would want to come work for us because we had real purpose. Even though it was an old school, old line, very conservative and very highly regulated, I'll add highly regulated uh, uh, business. I mean, for us, every, you know, we were in 46 states and every state's a country with insurance law. They all do their own laws. And there are there is overlap, of course, but they all do their own laws. So it uh, that was you know, in getting everyone around that complexity, and, and usually there's a lot of structure around that. We were able to finagle around our, our culture to still have that structure, but um, we were changing the world. So it sounds like as you as you progress, the more you turned your business into a mission and hey, we're on a mission guys and team to create the best uh, dental insurance experience to really help families with their dental care. And, and once it was more of a mission instead of just a job, just a business, it sounds like that was kind of the key to creating a culture and more than money. I think that's the biggest mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make is they think, well, it's really just about the income and the compensation package and all the benefits. But I, it sounds like of equal importance, and this is what I've started to see too, and you've noticed it, is 
people want a mission. They want a, a purpose, something that's bigger than themselves. And it sounds like that was really the key to your culture and, and getting the right people too. Yeah, it was really driven by the, you know, back in, in 2012 by the Affordable Care Act when it actually went into, into play and it was, we're going, okay, this thing's real. It actually is happening because it just doesn't ever feel, feel like it was going to happen. And, and, and the, the new added regulation that came from that and the new um, um, defined benefits that came from that. So I, it, it really apparently looked to me that we were becoming a commodity. You know, it's like a utilities. Utilities regulated. This is how much money you can make. This is the market you can be in, you know, and all those things. And I just saw, wow, we're, we're all heading into being, becoming a utility. Uh, and we're all, maybe like an unregulated utility like they have in parts of Texas and things. And it, it, when you're in that environment, it, it is very uh, difficult to differentiate yourself other than price, which is the worst place you can be in an industry is the only difference you are from your competitors is price. <laughs> And because we're all we're kind of offering the same, so uh, we 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 pulled back and and I and I decided that well, what's going to make us relevant in the future? And you know, and because we're all the same, we're selling the same widget, and and it was really the the customer experience because because health insurance, which the dental insurance falls in that bucket um, out of the thirty five industries that are that are surveyed every year on customer satisfaction, health insurance ranked from zero to six from the bottom every year. You can go back and look at the, the American Customer Satisfaction Index. Out of 35 industries, the best year a health insurance has ever had was six from the bottom. And why is that? It's because the experience is terrible. And it's not that the coverage is bad or anything like that, although there are some communication issues with that. The, and, we, and we really defined it into the financial transaction. Why is this financial transaction so complicated? So we focused on that. So, so what, what did it take to create that better customer experience to set you guys apart from the competition? Well, it, it took uh, pivoting um, from being an insurance, you know, insurance company that leveraged technology to be more efficient, because that's what most insurance companies do. They use technology just to operate, to becoming a technology company that happened to do dental insurance. So it's a massive cultural shift, and it took hiring the right people. Um, uh, you, know, we, you know, you almost have to have a, a, uh, a minister of culture, you know, in your organization to really to change. And the second, the other thing that we did is you need to change your facility. Uh, you, you have to have a place and a feel. Of course, right now, no one's in facilities, but, you know, pre-coronavirus, um, we, we turned into a tech company. You walk into our, our office, we're not an insurance company. We're Google. That's what we looked like. And, and uh, we, we, our, our, our acronyms were that we were rebels, rebels of the insurance industry, which was so anti-insurance. And, and, uh, and that's exactly what we called, we have uh, called ourselves rebels. And there was, there was meanings to all of those, those letters. And uh, that's what we, pounded into everyone all the time is that we're rebels and we are now a tech company. And uh, not to say that you have to be a tech company to make something successful, but we really did need to become a tech company um, because that was the problem is, is, is uh, 
you know, in our industry, a lot of companies uh, lease or use other company software. So if there's 10 to maybe 15 clients on this particular software package that, 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 um, that we're basically leasing, um, we all have the same technology. Well, technology is the differentiator in this era. And if you're, you cannot be a successful company and rent technology that other people can also rent. It's impossible because that's the only way you can differentiate yourself is technology is the experience. It's the mobile apps and, and of course the, the, the web, but even more importantly, the mobile apps and how they interact and how uh, the financial transaction actually occurs. And, and for us, we, what we really identified was that, that insurance companies have somewhat of an adversarial relationship with the healthcare providers. Um, we, we try to, you know, get them to reduce their prices through, through contracts. And then they feel like we're, we're trying to control their business and telling them what to do and what care to do. So we have this, it's kind of a love hate without insurance, the dentists would have less money because we're collecting money and earmarking it only to be spent in, in their offices, which is, is, is why you know the dentists are, are so financially successful but at the same time they look at us as someone that's trying to control them and 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 limit their and and which a lot of it is just things that aren't really um aren't really true uh, we've felt that that we could work together and and because of that adversarial relationship we don't communicate and when we don't communicate the financial transaction has no communication. And that's why it takes so long. It just takes forever because we, and we send everything through one way electronically and then we communicate through the mail after that. That's how it all, that's how it works in America today. We use, we use that 250 year old technology called the U S postal service to actually communicate because of that adversarial relationship. And it's uh, so that's what we really set out to change and, 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 and to fix the financial transaction so that when you walk out of the dental office, you're done, you're finished. There's no EOB, there's no anything, you're done, you walk out. And, you know, it, and it's kind of as liberating as the first time you took an Uber ride compared to a taxi. You know, that complexity of the financial transaction on, 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 on the, on when you, before you open the cab door to get out can be sometimes difficult. Oh, the credit card machine doesn't work. The, yeah, the, I, the, oh, he happens to not have change, you know, <laughs> you know, and those kinds of things. But with Uber, you just get out. And it just totally took that, that away. And, and that's what we were focusing on is just, just leave the dental office. You're done. You never have to look back again. And it's not that way today at all. And uh, so that's what we were focused on with our technology. It was all about giving the customer a much better experience. And in order to do that, you had to have the right mission-driven culture and employees. But the real key behind to put all that together was investing in your own proprietary technology that was yours, your software. And that's what gave the experience different and really set yourself apart. So it sounds like it's the software that you invested in that you created that's your own. And that's what really, you know, has made a massive difference in your growth. Yeah, yeah, it, it it's it, it really comes down to that is is you cannot uh, unless you're a tech company. Um, if you want to go beyond, you you want to go large. We have lots of employees, and you're serving lots of customers. 
Um, and unless you're maybe a grocery store or something that, you know, that, 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 that really is deals in commodities every day. If you're not a tech company, you're not going to be relevant in 10 years or less. And, uh, and I feel the same way about the insurance companies that are out there. Uh, you, you've got to be a tech company first because that's the expectation of the consumer. Uh, that is particularly that the consumer that's under 45 years old, it is now the, it is now the norm. And, uh, and if you don't have it, they'll go somewhere else. And, 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 and the, the organization that, that figures that out first will, um, get the lion's share of the, the business at the beginning uh, until the other ones catch up because they all will. And I, and I, I do believe that we, what we're, what we've done and what we're, that they're continuing to do there is going to change the dental industry forever. The, the, or at least the financial transaction side, it's going to change it forever. Um, the whole, you know, and there's opportunities around the world too, because if the world's, you know, other oh, yeah. Are, oh yeah, they're even worse than what we have in America today. So, so in terms of being that technology company, what is, how does, should that be defined for an entrepreneur? It should be having like your own software for your client, for your partners. What does it mean when you, when you say to become that tech company that, that sets yourself apart? Well, it, it just, it, you know, it, not every company fits this mold, but um, because we were a services company, we were business services and, and individual services, um, it, technology, uh, was, was, was an easy decision to make when, when, you know, because of that, of those services, if you're set, if you're in manufacturing or something like that, it still plays a role, but maybe not as great because, um, it's not a service company, it's a manufacturing company. Um, but it, it, it's really, if you have the right fit for a business, it's the only way you can be different from someone else because technology is hard. I have no idea how hard it was. I really didn't. And you know, when I made that, you know, here I, I'm an, I'm, a, I'm a, an accountant in the insurance business and now I'm going to be a CEO of a tech company. I got my nose bloodied a little bit, you know, just, just figuring out how to do that. And it, you know, everything takes, three times as much money and three times longer. Yeah. Forget, forget the twice thing. It's three to four times longer and, and three to four times more money, and particularly when you don't have the right people or you don't know what you're doing at the beginning. But you, you have to, you know, I thought I had the right people, but again, that, that, that's part of that, uh, uh, those mistakes that you make. And you, I didn't have the right people at the beginning. Of course, they, they do now. And, and that's what made their company so attractive to be acquired is because, of its tech um, because it's not easy to do. And it's very difficult for these, these large insurance companies to form a culture to do that. It's almost impossible because they're just too large. And uh, so, so I always say these large companies, especially in my industry, it's like turning an aircraft carrier in jello. You know, it just takes, insurance is so conservative. It just takes so long to do anything. The auto insurance industry has actually done a better job than the health insurance industry on, on creating a, a little more of a customer experience. But it's all about that customer experience. And, but, but technology, you know, getting into that technology is hard. Um, mistakes will be made. If you can get people that understand technology uh, and have done it before on your, on your team, um, that will help a lot. 
Absolutely. I didn't have that. Didn't have that at the beginning. But uh, that would have saved me a lot of time and money. So in a lot of businesses, there are certain key strategic partners who can really bring in a lot of clients. They don't take necessarily an investment in money, but kind of in building relationships. How important were strategic partners in kind of you know, growing Dental Select and, and taking it to that next level? Well, you know, there, there, there's two types of strategic partners. There's the operational ones, and then there's the distribution ones. Yes. And, from an, and I'll maybe separate those. Um, from an operational standpoint, uh, my goal was, particularly the last you know, 10 years, my goal was, unless it touched the customer, outsource it. And, and, and we, had, we had 100 employees 10 years ago, and we had about 110 when I, when I sold the company. That's because we outsourced so many things. Like, we outsource a ton of stuff. And, and I even outsourced the underwriting, the, the insurance, the insuring part of it, because it was, that required a lot of capital. That was, and it was very distracting. And, and so everything, we outsourced absolutely everything. That, and and that, that's always my number one thing, the advice I give people. If it doesn't touch the customer, outsource it, because then you can focus on the customer. If you're not focused on the customer, you're focused on developing this team to do something that someone else can already do way better than you and probably cheaper just because you feel like you need control, don't. Uh, focus on the customer. Um, now, technology touches the customer. That's why we focus on technology. But so that, that, that's from an operational standpoint, that's, that's my, that was my number one thing was uh, outsource when it doesn't touch the customer. When it does touch, touch, touch the customer, you want to control it. You want to own it. And then the other side is distribution and distribution, um, all, you know, relationships in that are in our business was super important because we actually didn't sell the product direct to the client. We went through insurance brokers and, and that is really difficult because, you know, you can't control, you know, they're all independent and we're all convincing them to try to sell our product over all the other companies that are trying to convince them to sell their products. And, and a lot of times we were spreadsheeted to, you know, from 10 to 15 companies that did what we did and they were all on a spreadsheet. And so what, why would they, why would they, other than price, why would they sell us instead of MetLife, for example, you know, big old MetLife. Uh, and it all becomes down, comes down to relationship. And we focused on that relationship and we nurtured them. And we actually did uh, incentive trips. And, and it's not, incentive trips are actually, you know, they got, the incentive trips kind of got demonized after 2008. Um, the whole AIG thing when they were in Hawaii, and just it, then Obama kind of nixed all that because they were helping AIG. And, and, and so it just became, all the public companies just ran and, and scared from incentive trips. They still have, now they kind of use an excuse not to do them because um, they're costly. But there is absolutely no possible way we could have built the relationships that we have with the distribution, with insurance broker and their spouse without being on a trip somewhere for, for, for seven days. I don't know, I don't care how many times I golf with them, I don't care how many times I took them out to lunch, but if we're in, you know, in, in some nice place somewhere in the world 
and we're enjoying a vacation together, that was the, that was the best way to, to, to learn who they are. And, and, and I have so many relationships that are so strong. Uh, and Dental Select has, you know, that was part of their success was um, doing what the industry, going the opposite direction, I guess, is what, where the industry was going. And, and I, I, I went towards an incentive trips and things like that when, when they were running from it because they could do other things that I couldn't do. And, I, and those things I could do, and we became really good at them. And uh, so, you know, it, it's, building relationships is not easy, particularly if you're selling, you know, directly to the consumer. How do you, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a far more difficult relationship than, than my organization where we had, you know, we had a few thousand insurance agents selling us, but we had hundreds of thousands of customers. So we could focus on those, uh, those relationships and, and nurture them. The downside is if that relationship ever went sour, they would move that business to someone else. And so you, had to, you didn't have control over the, the customer that was actually paying the money. Um, I mean, you, you did through good service. I mean, they, they, would, they would not want to leave, but... The, their insurance brokers have, have a lot of influence on their decisions um, because they make recommendations. That's why they have insurance brokers. So, uh, so that's how kind of how, how I define those uh, uh, the relationship side on, on whether it's a, the expense side or the revenue side. Well said. Awesome, awesome advice on those strategic <clears throat> partners and the relationships and the incentive travel. That is an amazing idea and something we're going to implement uh, with some of our partner programs. Good stuff. So. Here's a question. One of my mentors says that uh, if you're a part-time entrepreneur, you work 40 hours a week. If you're full-time, you work 60. And if you're all the time, you know you work 80. And so do you believe that successful entrepreneurs can have that work-life balance? What, what is your belief or, or you know, strategy on that? You know, I wish there was an exact science to the, you know, and, and a, a direct answer to this because I think there's been a lot of blogs and books written about work-life balance and some of it's BS and some of it's real. And it, 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 a lot of it depends on your own personal situation. Are you single? Do you have family? Do you have kids? Uh, how old are your kids? Um, what are their activities? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, things that can affect it. But I will say <clears throat> that you have to, in some ways, when you start a business that's new, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. It's just the way it is. Uh, you can't sugarcoat that. And the harder you work, the more time you put into it, um, there is, you know, um, a point where that doesn't work anymore, you know, because you get too tired or, or you do have, if you start to have marital issues or something, that's not a good thing either. But you have to expect to do it more at the beginning. I did. I was up at three in the morning all the time, just drumming up ideas um, on, my, on my computer, you know, back when, uh, they were really old, two eighty sixes, and uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to do something or analyze something. And yeah, you li you live, and, and you're also wearing a lot of hats. So you 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 just have to do what you have to do. But as a, as the business grows, it's easier to balance it, and uh, and and you know, there's your the problem is is when it grows you never can really escape it. 
I don't care. I don't care what people say. Oh, I can go and go on a two week vacation. You cannot go on a two week vacation with, with the way that we're in a connected world anymore without doing some email without, Oh, I got to take a call because I got to, you know, there's a, there's a decision that be made. Now I would say that over the years that got less and less as my team developed, they were awesome. I, I, I have an awesome team. They're all still at dental select today. Um, and, um, it was getting so I, I could not have a call for a week, sometimes two, if I was out of town, you know, gone on vacation. Uh, but uh, you have to expect that at the beginning. Um, and I know that some people deal with it better than others, but you're, you only know your, your situation. There's no one way of doing life balance. It's, uh, you know, it depends what your hobbies are. It depends, like at the beginning, I mean, I had golf as a hobby, but my hobby was my business. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't have survived if I would have just said, you know, I'm going to only work 40 hours a week on this, and then I'm going to focus on my family. I had, uh, when I started the company, I had two young children, you know, and so, you know, you're balancing all that, and uh, it's, it, it's difficult. I wish there was a, a, a straight-up answer for it. Um, uh, you'll know. I agree with you. I think it's just a calendar issue where you just, you don't have any time to waste. You don't have time to watch TV and do waste of time stuff, really. You know, you've got to pencil out some time for the family and the kids and then, you know, the rest of it. I mean, you might have to work uh, every day from 9 p.m. to midnight because that the kids just went to bed. And, and so you, you can't sit down, relax and watch TV. You're going to need to dedicate that time uh, until the business uh, grows. But yeah, I definitely agree with everything you said there. Are there any books or mentors who had an enormous impact on your success or the way you thought as a business owner? Well, this is the question that I, I do get on, on occasion. And, and it's, it's the, the answer is usually uh, um, comes by a, a little bit of a surprise, but no and no. I did not have a mentor at all. Uh, I didn't have a family member. I didn't have, I had, I figured it out on my own and I didn't read business books at all. Um, I started reading them later. Um, but like the last 10 years, maybe I was too busy, uh, girl in the company. And I, and, and I, I was business books are great and they gave me good ideas. Um, and I, and I actually recommend people doing it. I'm not saying I don't recommend doing it the way I did it. Um, but in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way, I was pretty lucky, or, and I was also very self-taught. I did my entire seven-year accounting degree through, because I lived out in an in oil patch way out in the middle of nowhere working for an accounting firm. I was three hours drive from where the lectures were, and so I did my seven years of education through correspondence. There was no internet back then. I did it through mailing in assignments, getting them back, and then challenging the exam. And these aren't easy exams. And so I, because of that, I learned how to sit down and read a book and learn it. And, and, uh, and I think that it, it, that trained my mind in a little bit different way because I didn't have any lectures. I didn't have any videos. There were no videos back then. And I just had to do it via, I had to learn how to learn on my own. And, and because that now I don't recommend that to other people perhaps, but as a result, I never really focused on business books. I never had I never had a mentor. I wish I did. You know, I I I've had that, that question answered before, and I, I want to give something really cool and say, oh, it was this wonderful thing person that that helped me. But there was no one. 
Um, so that's just kind of how it all, all uh, hopefully I'll be a mentor to someone, but uh, I didn't have that. Well, uh, you're, you're doing that right now. And, and that's what's awesome about today. There's technology and all these great resources in these podcasts and entrepreneur shows where you can learn so much from someone like you and your journey. But at the end of the day, I think the lesson that you're teaching us is that you have to find your own solutions within your industry, within giving your customer or client a better experience than the competition. And only you can figure those things out. You can't figure that out. The mentor who's not even in your field or the, the online uh, resources and the books, they're not going to tell you exactly what you have to do within your industry to make a difference and to stand out. And, and so that's, I think, the lesson that you're teaching. You have to figure that out. And you can if you dedicate the time and you're focused on the customer experience. Mm -hmm. So awesome yeah. stuff there. So we've covered a lot. Is there anything that we've touched on or that we haven't touched on that you think we should know or, or uh, that, that's important that we haven't covered? Well, really, really the, you know, starting a business is all about risk reward and it's risky. And, you know, I, I was fortunate. A lot of people don't make it through 31 years. That's pretty rare actually. And, uh, and, and, and I, I was very blessed by uh, having a, building something that ended up being uh, something that another larger company wanted. Um, but I can, I can tell you the, the most important thing is people and, and, and you need to have the right people around you. And that's the hardest, like there's no people class, you know, there, there's no college course for people hiring people in business. It, because it, it's experience and and so but getting the right people around you is is critical um you know and then the other the, the other thing that i did was when i knew i i was kind of getting ready for an exit i didn't know when when exactly the exit would be and in fact i i was actually thinking i'll just raise some capital and even you know go bigger but then you know the the strategics really wanted to i didn't know how badly they wanted our organization but they did so uh, we ended up, up selling the entire thing. But <clears throat> when you are getting in a position where, all right, I, I think there could be an exit here, you need to make yourself irrelevant. You, because when you get that payday, it doesn't matter how much you think you're going to, you, I'm going to stay involved. And I'm going to, you know, I do consult back to the, the, the company that uh, acquired us for the, for a period of time, but it, it you have to, to walk away from it and you have to not turn back and you just have to know that it's going to change and you have to know that uh, it's not going to be maybe what you want it to be. Um, and I've had, you know, and not that it's changed that much, but I, I can already see little things, you know, because, you know, management style and things like that. And when you have a, 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 an organization that, that acquired you, they have their ways of doing things, although they're operating it as a separate entity, which is, which is great. Um, but uh, you got, so I hired about five years ago, I hired a person and my intent was to groom them to be president. And I, ma I made him president about three years ago and because, and so he's president of the company today. And so I kind of made myself well, well, less relevant, let's just say, um, and that makes an acquiring company feel comfortable that because when the owner gets the payday, which is all kind of what we're all after in business, right? And you, you, you got this other thing to manage now. So it's called a lot of cash. 
and you've got to, and, and, and you've worked a long time to get it. And you become a little more risk adverse, <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, but you have to manage it and put a lot of time into that. And, uh, and so <clears throat> these acquiring companies know that. And I really didn't know that. I'll be honest with you. I just thought, oh, I'm going to stop. I'll just stay on a CEO. And they, they kind of, no, um, the longest we've ever seen a person stay on is six months. And, and they were right. You, you, you lose interest. You, well, you don't lose interest, but your, your energy shifts to something else. So, and they knew that. And in their wisdom, they did know that. And, and luckily, I had a person hired that could take those responsibilities. And that, that actually helped in the sale. It made me a lot of money, I'll be honest with you, and more value uh, because there was someone that um, still had a lot of runway with the company and uh, that uh, would, would, be, would be around and, and they wouldn't lose their management team right out the gate. So, you know, there's, there's you know, setting yourself up for a, a sale, that's when the number one thing is you got to make yourself less relevant and it's, it's hard to do. Because you want to control it, um, but you have to. Hey, you'll, 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 uh, you'll be happy you did. So to kind of encompass all the success here and, and the steps, great people are the key. Creating an organization that can run without you having to be there every second will make it much more valuable. Focusing on that customer experience and giving them an extraordinary experience that sets yourself apart from the competition, an experience that's connected to great technology that connects right to your customer, and then kind of bringing that all full circle with uh, great strategic partners and, and recurring revenue. Like there is just a key. If you have a recurring revenue business, it's going to be seen as so much more valuable than a business that just gets paid, you know, some lump sum payments here and there. Yeah. And, 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 and to put it a layer around all that, what you just said, there's a lot that can go wrong in all that. Yep. And you have to have a lot of grit. Uh, you can't, you just got to get up and keep going and keep going. And, and, and at the beginning, it's hard, um, but it's worth it. That's why you do it. It's the American dream. You know, I, like I said, to, to sum it all up, I came, I emigrated from here from Canada 31 years ago with $2,000 and, and I sold a, won't say how much, but it's a, it's a significant amount and you can, anyone can do this. Uh, and being an immigrant was challenging sometimes. I was having to deal with visas and all kinds of things and, uh, you're born here, you have the biggest opportunity in the world. Uh, I always tell young people that I said, you're born here, you're, you're an American citizen, you can, whatever you want to do, you can do, literally. And, but it takes grit, so. Amen, well, hey Brent, we really ex appreciate you sharing your journey the keys to success and in, in building a phenomenally successful company and having a massive exit. And you've given us a lot of value today. What can we do to repay your value? How can we connect up with you and, and what can we do for you? Uh, everybody who's going to listen to this and watch this for years to come. Well, you're, you're free to, to, to connect with me. And I, mean, I, I, I enjoy actually talking to people and helping people. Um, uh, I, I have a Twitter account under Brent G. Williams. I have a, uh, my a LinkedIn account. You can easily find me on LinkedIn under Brent Williams, and uh, and 
connect with me those ways. That's probably the easiest. And you don't need to remember my email address. You can just search for me. It's Brent Williams Dental Select. It's going to come up. And uh, uh, I'd be happy to help anyone. I'd be happy to answer questions. Uh, and uh, it, it's kind of what I kind of enjoy now because I'm not running a business. I, I like to help other people now because I didn't have that. And uh, so hopefully I can make someone else's pathway a, a little uh, less curvy, more of a straight line. Absolutely. And one thing I would like to point out is that you also run or have overseen a phenomenal charity that uh, does sealants for underprivileged children uh, across the country. And, and I think that's an amazing legacy that, that you've, uh, that you've built there as well. Yeah, we, we're, we're just winding that all down now. We, uh, we did it for several years and uh, we, we really changed a lot of lives with, uh, with, with, with kids with that charity. And uh, we were doing, we were seeing 50 to 70,000 kids a year just putting sealants on their teeth and fluoride and a lot of them which would never, have never even seen a dentist before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, uh, we, we definitely reduced the amount of uh, dental work, dental problems they had, which was really one of the barriers to getting out of poverty. And uh, so it, it was, it was awesome. It was, it was good. And, and Dental Select kind of administered that, that charity. And so we had a, we had, we had a good time with it. We did a lot of cool, cool stuff with the kids. Perfect. Well, everyone can connect with him on uh, Twitter, on LinkedIn. Definitely should uh, take a look at Dental Select if you have not uh, for your own dental and vision insurance because they do a phenomenal job. I've, I've used them personally. So, well, Brent, we appreciate all your time. It's, it's been amazing and you have an amazing week and thanks so much again for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.